In today's podcast, I chat with Professor Dr. Don Upchurch from UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health about the health benefits of mindfulness and meditation and how we can incorporate this into our lives now. We recorded this podcast a while back before the tragedy of the killing of George Floyd and the remarkable swell the Black Lives Matter movement throughout the country. As our fight for justice and peace continues, we hope to continue supporting you with the knowledge and resources to take care of your health and well-being so that you can continue onwards and upwards. Mindfulness meditation can be a powerful way to stay grounded and take care of your mental and spiritual health. As Dr. Upchurch explains in this podcast, it's necessary to take care of oneself to be able to go out and do the work that needs to be done. Hi, Dr. Don Upchurch. Now, it's such a great pleasure to interview you today on Six Feet Apart. The work that you do around meditation, the research you do around meditation, the practice of meditation, and you're now in the last, I guess, 10 years or so, you got trained and licensed in being an acupuncturist. I mean, that's a very unusual combination for a academic it's very, researcher. Yes, very yeah, unusual combination. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what I thought we'd start with, uh, and we could sort of delve into some of those other subjects, but the meditation has been a huge, there's been a huge groundswell over the last decade, but in particular during this sheltering in place. And I'd love to understand why we're looking towards meditation as a solution to many of our issues today and frankly in the last decade or more. And what drew you to this field? Well, again, thank you for having me here. And I want to welcome everyone as well. And thanks for the opportunity. And uh, also want to just acknowledge and send gratitude out to the essential workers, just to really thank them all for the hard work and the sacrifice they're making. So I think before I talk about meditation in the context of, of the pandemic, uh, maybe just some definitions so people are clear about what we mean when we talk about meditation. There's many types of meditation. There's uh, chanting meditation. There's Zen meditation. Even certain types of prayers are meditative, contemplative prayer and so on. Even certain aspects of yoga have a meditation component. And so meditation is really a formal practice that involves stillness, and it allows your it allows the person to train their attention and awareness and become more mentally clear and calm. And so when we talk about mindfulness meditation, that's one type of meditation. And I think mindfulness is what has really sort of taken off in the last, certainly in the last decade. We know the rates of people who report uh, meditating have increased dramatically even in the last five years. So, and those are national rates? Those are national rates, yeah. U.S. national? U.S. Mm-hmm. national rates, yeah. And I think part of that interest is because of the growing evidence, scientific evidence base for meditation, and in particular for mindfulness. You, we've just seen an exponential increase in scientific research around the health benefits of meditation, both physical and mental, as well as the actual changes in brain structure and functioning. And I think the popular press has really picked up on that. And I think that's why there's a growing interest. 
So the growing interest had nothing to do with necessarily what was going out in the world of pandemics or tragedies. It was more around the fact that people were starting to see the science that was emerging that supported this as an effective method. Well, I think that I think the interest started before the current situation. I, I can only imagine that the interest has gone up even more since 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 the pandemic. Since the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed in your research articles that you found that a lot of people did though gravitate when they might have been diagnosed or had a chronic illness that they look to it as a solution to something that they might find useful. So if we talk specifically about mindfulness meditation, the earliest studies on mindfulness meditation was from a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that was done in the 70s, I think at Harvard, by a well-known expert in meditation, John Kabat-Zinn. And the express purpose for these MBSR programs was to help people who had chronic pain. And it was an eight-week program, meeting one hour a week, and then the recommendation of meditating a minimum of 20 minutes a day. And what these, these early studies found is that people's relationship to their pain fundamentally changed and changed in such a way that people had better strategies for managing their pain that their actual level of pain, self-reported level of pain went down and just their overall well-being improved. So those those were the those were the early days of, of mindfulness meditation research. And then there was a little bit of, you know, not a whole lot going on. And then about, like I said, about 10 years ago, a lot of neuroscientists also became interested in looking at meditation and then a number of other studies. Inter, that clinical trials and so on, looking at the utility of, of mindfulness meditation for a variety of health health outcomes. Yeah, it really struck me with the neurologists, how they found, I guess they've been analyzing the brain of the Dalai Lama and other people who meditate a lot right, more right, than right. I do, that's yeah. for sure. Oh gosh, more than yeah. me too. And his uh, scans look pretty like useful compared to his uh, chronological age. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, and... What, from what I understand from our neurologic, our neuroscientists friends at UCLA is that even within an hour after you've meditated, your brain looks better than, so it's not like you have to be like the Dalai Lama and spend your life, you know. The science is showing that a fairly small dose of meditation can make a difference in brain structure and functioning. That it increases the neural pathways in the brain and also actually makes the prefrontal cortex, makes it larger, which is something you want because that's sort of your executive functioning part of your brain. And, and at any age, they've done studies with seniors or the oldest old and even in starting meditation at an older age can have profound benefits. And so I guess there's two questions that that statement leads me to. One is, what is a small dose? Okay, yes. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I always tell people something is better than nothing. So even if you only have a few minutes, that's better than not doing anything at all. Also, if people sometimes people have a hard time sitting still and really engaging in a formal meditation practice, but there are other things you can do during the day, like mindfulness awareness. So that if you can, in your daily activities, 
just be the, be here now, be in the present moment, or focus just on a few breaths. That oftentimes in meditate in the mindfulness meditation world, we use the breath as an anchor. That can make a difference. But in clinically, small dose is about twenty minutes a day, daily, for six to eight weeks. That's generally when there's a, a difference is seen. Although there are some studies that show even even ten minutes for just a week or two can can have a difference. So it kind of depends on what kind of outcome you're interested in. If you're if you're having a lot of anxiety, if people are having a lot of anxiety, for example, during all of this, like I think many of us have experienced, or distress and coping, any amount can make a, a can make an immediate difference. Just even a few minutes can make an immediate. Or like for example, if you have a Fitbit or some other type of device. Many of them also have a function where you can do like a relaxation breath for two to five minutes. Something like that can can really help people in the short term with kind of this their the acute symptoms that they're experiencing. And if you do it over time, what we tend if we're talking about stress or anxiety, what happens then is we become less reactive to situations, and by doing so, it reduces the the stress and anxiety. So one of the suggestions is you know using a guided meditation, which is what you're describing, and twenty minutes a day. Is it like exercise where you could do two ten minute? You can. Starts? You can. You can do that. Yeah. I think. If you're new to meditation, I think it's important to start out slowly and be very gentle on yourself. No one practices meditation perfectly, not even the Dalai Lama or all these people who have been meditating for decades. And just start very slowly with a small amount, even two minutes. For If you've not had much experience with meditation, two minutes can seem like forever. Also, if you're new to meditation, use a guided meditation where someone is actually talking you through. That seems to help people stay focused and rather than sort of going on the train of all of our thoughts and emotions kind of taking us off somewhere. That's been very useful for me. Following the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA has really given me some help with the guided meditations. At the end of this podcast, we'll put a, a variety of different resources that are free to people that can be utilized either in-person guided meditations and also recorded ones. Great. And Mark in the last year put together an app that is free and you can download it so that you can have it on your phone and and just use it as you as you need to. And they start it starts very small, two minute meditation. So Maybe I should take a minute and say what you actually do when you meditate. What do you think? Ah, that sounds great. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'd like to know. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I do, but maybe it's not exactly what everyone else does. I know. Well, there's, like I said, there's a lot of different ways to meditate. But if we're talking about mindfulness, what we tend to do is take a few moments to get grounded in our body, to turn our focus inward. That can be a challenge for some people. So oftentimes I encourage people to shut their eyes and then getting grounded in your body, taking a few deep breaths to relax. We know that when you exhale, it engages your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxation part of the nervous system. So having a breath that's somewhat longer going out than coming in can be very helpful just to get started. And then just get centered in your body And if that doesn't make sense to you, just feel your body. If centering doesn't make sense, just feel your body. And then 
just go back to your normal breath. You don't need to do anything in terms of changing your breath or modifying your breath. Just breathe naturally. And what we tend to do then is focus on a certain area where we feel the breath coming in. For people who are new, usually it's right under the nose because you can feel the actual breath coming in and going out. Others focus more around the neck and throat area, chest area, or even down into the abdomen. But for that particular practice, just focus on that one area and focus on your breathing. Just feel the breath coming in, feel the breath going out. And what's going to happen, and it will happen to everyone, it happens to me all the time, is you may get one breath and all of a sudden here come the thoughts. And what we do is just let that thought be and just return very gently to our breath. We try very hard not to be worried about our thinking. We just let that thinking go and come back to the breath. Sometimes I like to think of it when I'm meditating that these thoughts come and go, they're, but they're kind of background noise for me. So that the focus, the foreground noise, if you will, is the, is the focus on the breath. Because the thoughts are going to be there. The thoughts come and go. The emotions come and go but we just keep returning to the breath. And what that does is it brings us to present moment awareness. So that's a little mini meditation course. I love that. I was doing it while you were doing it to me. <laughs> well, I did, um, I did. I've had quite a bit of training at Mark. I did a year-long training in mindfulness facilitation, and I'm, I'm a certified mindfulness facilitator. And then I also did a year-long intensive personal practice uh, program through Mark. So I have some training. I'm, my meditation has been a little bit fits and starts lately. And that happens to people. We all have moments where we're doing really well with our practice and other moments where it, it's more of a challenge. And so I do find that if I have a regular daily practice, I can cope a lot better in more positive ways. And so what have you built yourself up to in general? Like what does your practice entail? So usually what I do, I have a morning practice. Depending on how much time I have in the morning, I try to set aside 15 to 20 minutes. And then during the day, if I have a few moments, I will do like a progressive relaxation meditation, which is I often do it guided so that I kind of relaxed during the day. This may sound like enough, but a lot, but I just do it for a couple minutes. And then at night, as I'm in bed, I do another progressive muscle relaxation to help me to help me get to sleep. Not very long, a couple minutes. Nice. Yeah. Not every day. I do my best. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing. We have to, we just do our best. Right. That's a really good mantra. Yeah. I think. <laughs> you know, all you can expect is your best, yeah. you know, your personal best. And I feel that what you just said is like being forgiving of yourself. And I think that's something that all of us need to be thinking about, you know, when we're wanting to help our family and ourselves and then others in this sheltering at home and now, you know, our recovery and resurgence. We also have to take care of ourselves, right? If you're not healthy, it's hard to do anything. Well, that's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, I understand, I completely understand that for some people, it can be really difficult to set aside some time at home, especially those who have children and, and other family commitments or household commitments. And so what I would suggest then is to do those mindful moments, anything you, you know, to, if you're, if you're hugging your child, really engage in hugging that mm -hmm. child. If you're cooking dinner, 
really focus in on the carrots you're chopping. Or if you're working on something, really focus in on that. Those mindful moments can make a big difference too. That's interesting you say that because I know with the washing of your hands, the two happy birthdays, it takes a long time. So I've used that as a moment to sort of just slow down and that's a great idea. Regroup. Yeah, that's an absolutely great idea. Being in the moment where you're just you're just washing your hands. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I, I've learned to do is, uh, you know, because I know you've taught me this and others about gratitude, which is part of, I think, all of the mindfulness meditation work, right? And, right. Part yeah, A lot, and, a big part of what we do with mindfulness too. So part of what mindfulness helps you to do, mindfulness meditation, and it helps sort of quiet the negative thoughts and kind of the noise that we constantly have. We sometimes talk about it, our thoughts being like a hamster wheel. Uh, helps to kind of calm that. But then this practice of gratitude, or sometimes it's called loving kindness, is really a nice way to instill and grow positive emotions and positive thoughts. And I think it's important, especially now, for all of us to take a few moments and think about it. it could be the smallest thing you could have gratitude that you had a delicious piece of toast with homemade jam on it or whatever it might be but just the smallest of things that you had a good night's sleep that you were able to go for a walk those kinds of things can can really over time make a big difference and I know a lot of people also start the day with a gratitude list uh, they'll just write down five things or two things that they're they're grateful for And that sort of sets the stage for your day. So you're able to sort of start it with a positive outlook. And I think in times like these, we could use some of that. And and even if it's just the smallest things. Yeah, I have found that as a really go-to place to help my day rather than before I get up, I'm always often thinking, oh, I got to do this and that and this and that. Oh, yeah. and I say, Why don't I start the day differently? Yeah. Take a breath. <laughs> let, me think about, <laughs> let me think about who I'm who I'm grateful for, what I'm grateful for. And so now I've incorporated it into my happy birthday. Song. Oh, that's good. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I wish people out. I, I started doing it first to myself. <laughs> singing happy birthday to myself and then I've, I've evolved to add other people into the slots. Well, I think that's great. And I, I think it sometimes it can be challenging for us to have gratitude towards ourselves. But I think that that's a really important thing to at least work on, to lighten up on ourselves and I we can be we can all be particularly hard on ourselves so oftentimes we say we're our own worst enemies right and so if you can just loosen up just a little bit and have just a tad of gratitude what's I think really remarkable about you Dawn and I really you're a researcher and a practitioner which I think can enhance both sides of your practice your research can be informed by your practice and your practice can be informed by your research, which I have seen with you. And also it's, I think, allowed you to be a really innovative researcher who's published innovative articles on this subject that you know how to practice or you've learned to practice and teach. And I'd like to sort of pivot and talk about some of your research because you're grounded in practice and research. And one of your research articles showed that one in five adults in the United States practice some type of meditation in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I know you define meditation broadly, and that includes also 
religious practice, correct? Right. Certain types, certain types of religious practice. So things like contemplative prayer are measured or are considered types of meditation. Not all types of prayer, but it can be incorporated in a, in a, into a, a religious or other type of spiritual practice. Yeah. What is contemplative prayer? It is a quieting of the mind. It's basic. It's essentially a Christian form of meditation. It's sitting quietly and focusing on a thought, focusing on a breath, but again, being still so that you increase your awareness, you become more mentally clear and calm. And that would include, I would imagine, almost every religious practice yeah. has a form of that. Yeah, um, yeah, I would, I would imagine, yeah. yeah. I'm not an expert on that, but I would think so, yeah. Yeah. So in, these, in this data set that you, you've used to analyze practices with meditation, do they include you know, participating in some religious faith or not? So they do. And in the past, the way these studies looked at religious participation in the context of things like meditation or complementary and alternative medicine, a lot of times what the way they measure it were, were, do you engage in prayer for health or prayer circles for a person's health? That was considered a form of alternative practice. But recently, the data don't really look at that. It's more just the specific type of contemplative prayer that's included as a form of meditation. It all has to do with how you're going to, what we call in the scientific, operationalize what meditation is. There's no one definition for it. And there's no one practice, really. What's interesting in your studies, I in a number of your articles, have been the differences in different gender and age groups. And I'd love you to comment on what you think stood out to you in yeah. your research. So just like the people who use other types of what we call complementary and alternative practices, at a population level in the United States, the people who meditate, who are more likely to meditate, tend to be... Uh, middle-aged, more affluent. They tend to be white. They also tend to engage in more healthy behaviors, but also report a greater number of health conditions. So you have this kind of yin and yang going on. And one of the, one of my earlier studies, like, cause I got very interested in that. How can you be practicing healthier behaviors and have poorer health conditions and you're practicing meditation? And what we found was, or other types of, of alternative practices is that there's two distinct groups of people who engage in these practices. They're people who are doing it primarily as part of a healthy lifestyle and for wellness. That's where you have the health behavior association. And then there's other people who are using it to cope with their health conditions. So using it more as treatment or, or to help alleviate symptoms. So, so, so the, so the interest there is, so we can see that there's a bias with respect to who's engaging in what could potentially be very helpful and low cost self-care and self-practice. And so we have a, a pilot study through the Eisner Foundation working with Dr. Teresa Seaman, who's down in geriatrics. And this is also with Dr. Mike Prelip, where we started a pilot project bringing mindfulness meditation to a group of 
seniors who volunteered in some lower performing grade schools in LAUSD. And we created an eight-week program that incorporated a lot of what Mark does in what they call their MAPS class, Mindfulness Awareness Practices class, but also some additional training to help the volunteers learn how to bring mindfulness into the classroom. So what we were hoping to do is to help, because when you work with grade school, this is grade school kids like second and third graders. And we know that if kids can get up to their reading level, like second and third grade, they're much less likely to drop out of high school. So, and this this ongoing program has had profound success and also significantly improved the health of these seniors in terms of a variety of different measures, including reduced functional limitations, weight loss, reduction in inflammation markers, and a variety of things. And so we're just in the process now of analyzing some of our data and, and assessing the uh, the sort of you know, lessons learned from doing this kind of pilot study. And so part of my vision, part of what I really would like to do with the next several years with mindfulness is bringing mindfulness to under-resourced communities because those communities are the ones least likely to have access. And I believe mindfulness should be free for all. I don't think you should have to pay thousands of dollars and go to a retreat center. to have a day or two or three or week with mindfulness. I think I think it's something that we really need to share with everyone and that it can be part of a healthy lifestyle and everyone can do it a little bit in a way that's going to work best for them. So as we shelter in place, has that program, has it continued virtually? So we literally just met like two days ago to talk about it. And we've got a great trainer. She's very enthusiastic. She's had very good luck with Zoom calls with doing mindfulness training. And so we're going to offer weekly workshops for any of these volunteers. They're, they're pretty tech savvy. So it, they've been doing Zoom and so on. So, or some kind of remote, which is great. They're very tech savvy, retired women. And so we're going to offer that for them weekly, once or twice a week for the months of June and July, at least. We have we should have funding to cover at least that. So I'm very excited about that. Well, that's actually, it's such a, it sounds like such a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And they can pop in and pop out. I mean, if they want to just stay for 20 minutes, they can stay for 20 minutes or come in late or whatever it might be. So in regards to the uh, current situation and sheltering in place. How could meditation help all of us in this current situation? What is your opinion? Well, I think one of the ways it can be very helpful, a little bit of what we talked about earlier, helping people to cope with all of these stressful times and challenges that we're all going through and to take a few moments and uh, quiet the mind and be at peace for a moment. I think it can really help with stress and anxiety in many ways. And the more you can engage in a bit of meditation every day, uh, it can really help you get through the days. Because I know we, we all have challenges. I mean, the first two weeks we were, you know, with the shelter in place and everything, I probably had two or three panic attacks a day. It was very anxiety producing for me. And I could not sit still and do a quiet meditation at that time. I had to do a guided progressive muscle relaxation exercise to to calm down. And 
I know I'm not the only one who has gone through that. And so I think it's important for people to have, have these, have these skills. I kind of, when I talk to students, I, I talk about having a toolkit of self-care and sometimes you want to feed yourself with nourishing food, but sometimes you need a cookie, you know, and just like sometimes you're, a run, it really makes a big difference. And sometimes sitting still in meditation can be helpful. So the more sort of tools and the, the more skills you have, the more you're going to be able to help yourself manage in a positive way all the things that are happening. That's, I'm hoping to have a little time to do my 10 minutes, start my 10 minute meditation every day. <laughs> I already did I'm mine start this morning. That. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great. So to wrap up, what good do you think will come out of this pandemic? And in other words, what do you see has been good for you and your work? Well, I think as a nation, it's cause for a time of reflection for how we as a country want to move forward. I think the pandemic has once again laid bare the long and enduring disparities, and I hope we see this as an opportunity to improve everyone's future and everyone's health. For me personally, it's been a very important time for my own personal reflection and really coming to terms with what is important to me and how I want to live my life. It's been an important time. I've spent some time journaling and meditating and also transitioning to my, the third age. And so figuring out how, how I want to spend those, those later years is, is very important to me. Yeah, I agree totally with your reflections about the laying bare the disparities that are in our country and how we need to be working even harder to minimize those and on so many levels, basic needs, health and well-being. They're all important and should be considered part of the core of a society. Yeah. And, that, you know, yeah. we're both in public health and we we both know that we have a lot of work ahead of us. We all have a lot of work ahead of us, not just those of us in public health. But it's also made me realize in terms of my own research that I want to do a lot more practice research as opposed to analyzing data sets. I've, I mean, I'm a demographer. I do that for a living. But I think really doing projects and programs that can help improve people's lives is important. And I think it's important for all, this is a call to action. If we, if we didn't think we had one before, we absolutely have it now. And I think it's a responsibility for all of us to do everything we can. But there's a little quip that also says, you know, put your own life mask on first, right? So it really is a matter of taking care of oneself to be able to go out and, and do the work that needs to be done. That's right. And I think your point about translating research to practice is critical because we have science behind us to really support the evidence of how having a healthy society will bring wealth and this pandemic, I think, lays bare that, it, you know, the threat to people's health has now really threatened people's wealth or even their livelihoods. And so we need to be cognizant of, you know, building resilience during this time of recovery and resurgence in order for us to address these inequities and also to be better prepared for the future, not just individually, but our community and our, and our planet health all three together. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we see that there's increasing kind of pandemic fatigue where people want their lives back, which is completely understandable. So I think as public health people too, it's going to be important to 
deliver new and creative messages for the importance of sheltering in place six feet apart, wearing your masks. As I said before, when we were doing our other webinar, something not happening, a non-event is a success in public health, but it's really hard for us to get our heads around what that really means. And so I think coming up with new and creative messaging is going to be it's going to be critical especially as we go into the summer and more importantly into the fall where it's anticipated there will be another another surge of of infection. Well what you just recited three of the five core ingredients to protecting ourselves from during this pandemic sheltering in place will be now partially relaxed. So it's six feet apart or social distancing, right? Right. Masks. Right. Washing your hands frequently at least five times a day. Yeah. And every time you go in and out of a public domain, you need to be doing that. And self-monitoring. If you're not feeling well, even a runny nose, you need to be restricting your your exposures to others. Yeah. And then culture. That's right. Culture that supports people that do all five. And it's like a recipe. If you don't have baking soda, nothing will rise. If you don't have the salt, the the flavor won't pop out. So you need all five to be successful. And uh, Atul Gawande wrote about that in uh, The New Yorker a couple weeks ago and and shared how the natural experiment of Mass General, where 75,000 people work, very, very few got sick, even though they were exposed to many people with COVID-19. So the, the five principles followed together work. But if you leave one out, it will not work. That's right. And That's culture, right. I think, is a key one. I think it is. I think we have to have we have to generate a new culture. I mean, and so how do we do that? with creative messaging. I think it's, I think it will be important where people see that it's also for their own good and as well as the good of others. Well, you're appealing to their altruism in a lot of ways. You are. One of our social well-being experts shared that appealing to altruism can be through storytelling. And so we're actually working on highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things during the pandemic, but also even before the pandemic, the eudaimonia award kind of or recognition of people who live a life of meaning and purpose can also inspire others. It's sort of like what my dad used to say, read the obituaries, Wendy, in the New York Times, and that will give you some ideas about how to live a life that might get you where that person got. But anyway, well, stories the other are thing, really strong. Yeah. The other thing people, I, I think, can be helpful for us to to really fully embrace is that altruism also makes you feel better. When you share and give to others, you feel better. You just do because it's yeah. it's it's part of who we are as humans, right? Yeah. So that there is a selfish benefit too in many ways is that it it really does help those who are giving to feel like they're making a difference. That's so true. It's, you know, well, it's the feedback loop, right? You have to get that positive reinforcement to keep going at something in general over over time anyway. Well, Don, you're just a treasure uh, for our community at UCLA, but also LA community and national, our U.S. community. I mean, you've contributed so much in so many different ways. And I look forward to working with you on uh, moving our agenda forward in terms of really not letting this 
pandemic go to waste, but really bringing ourselves and our community to a, another level of health and well-being. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for those yeah. kind words. I'm feeling very humble right now. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. It was just a pleasure yeah. to be here. I, I hope this was helpful. Very much so. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Six Feet Apart, a special series of the Live Well podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by UCLA's Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To stay up to date with the rest of the episodes in this special series and to get more information on maintaining your mental, social, and physical well-being during COVID-19, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts. Thank you and stay remote.